0: Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter three, where you find the text printed in the bulletin, James three verses thirteen through eighteen. And maybe you're wondering, John, what are we doing in the middle of the book of James? Doesn't James start in chapter one? Well, over the course of the last couple of years, uh, I have preached through the first half of the book of James. Whenever I would be preaching and Barry did not assign a text, often I would pick. James and have been working through. And so as I was praying for what the Lord would have for us, for the remainder of the summer, I felt led to finish the book of James. And so that's where we'll be for the next five or six weeks. And just as a way of introduction, the book of James is a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. It was written around AD 50 to the churches that were scattered all throughout the known area because of persecution for their faith. James is a very practical book. It's often described as the New Testament version of Proverbs. And at times, you feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. It's just so much information. And yet The practical truths we find in this book offer much to say to you and I as we seek to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Before I read this text, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and His help. Gracious God, you have told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word, James 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Have you ever heard of the book Absolute Zero Gravity? Well, I hadn't heard of it either until earlier this week. The subtitle of the book is this, A Collection of Jokes, Anecdotes, Limericks, and Riddles Revealing the Funny Side of Physics, Biology, Mathematics, and Other Branches of Science. In that book, there's a silly story. It's not true. Uh, It's not even completely theologically accurate, but it serves a point. The story goes like this. An angel appeared at a faculty meeting, and tells the dean that in return for his unselfish and exemplary behavior, the Lord is going to reward him with his choice of infinite wealth, wisdom, or beauty. Without hesitating, the dean selects infinite wisdom. Done, says the angel, and disappears in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. Now all heads turn towards the dean, who sits surrounded by a faint halo of light. At length, one of his colleagues whispers, Say something. The dean looks at him and says, I should have taken the money. You know, we can laugh at a story like that. But I think we, if we're not careful, can approach wisdom like that, dean. We, yeah, we know the Bible says it's important, but it isn't flashy. It doesn't always get us more of what we want. And so we forget about it and we move on to other things that will maybe get us more of what we want. here in the second half of James 3, we find crucial teaching about the importance of wisdom. And whether we admit it or not, we all need wisdom. In this passage before us, we find three key truths about wisdom. But before we examine them, we need to answer a very important question. What is wisdom? Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so wisdom and reverential awe of God Almighty go hand in hand together. Wisdom isn't just knowing a lot of facts. It's the application of intellect, and biblical wisdom goes a step further. A simple definition of biblical wisdom that I like to use is this. Wisdom is the practical application of the truths of God's Word into everyday life. Biblical wisdom... The practical application of the truths of God's holy word into everyday life. And if that's the definition, then what does James teach us about this wisdom from above? Well, first, he reminds us that wisdom from above must be received. James starts this question with a rhetorical, or this passage with a rhetorical question Who is wise and understanding among you? Perhaps some reading or hearing this letter immediately thought of themselves as wise. Yeah. That's me. I'm wise, some might think. Well, then comes the next part. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, James is saying, prove your wisdom by not just your actions, but by your entire way of life. Notice he doesn't say prove your wisdom by your theological knowledge or in the amount of scripture you've memorized. No, it's how you live your life. We can imagine some of James' original audience thinking, "Ooh, you know, I do need wisdom. Let me try to find some. And as a result, they begin searching books and teachers to help them gain wisdom. There's a story about a proud young man who came to the philosopher Socrates asking for knowledge. He walked up to the philosopher and said, oh, great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. Well, Socrates could recognize an arrogant fool when he saw one, and so he takes this man on a little trip down to the ocean, takes the out about chest deep of water, and then he asks him, "'What do you want?' "'Knowledge, O wise, Socrates,' said the young man. Socrates put his hands on the man's shoulders and pushed him under the water, held him for 30 seconds, and then let him up. "'What do you want?' he asked. "'Wisdom,' the young man sputtered, "'O great and wise, Socrates.' Pushed him under again, this time for 40 seconds. He let him up, and the man was gasping, What do you want, young man? Between heavy breaths, he wheezed, Knowledge, oh, wise and wonderful. Socrates pushed him under again, this time holding him for 50 seconds. And after letting him up, he said, What do you want? Air! He exclaimed, I need air! When you want knowledge as much as you just wanted air, then you will have Knowledge. You know, you and I can approach wisdom like this young man. We realize we need it, and so we go searching, and we think if we just search hard enough, if we just are desperate enough, it'll be ours. But if we do that, we miss the key principle from this passage. Wisdom is a gift, and therefore it must be received. Earlier in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, it will be given him. You know, the fact of the matter is that we do, in fact, need wisdom. But instead of trying to get it on our own, we must humble ourselves and ask for it. 1 Kings 3, the passage that was our first reading today, we find Solomon coming to the throne of Israel, and he prays, he's given the opportunity to ask for whatever he wants, instead of asking for wealth or for power. He asks for wisdom, and God answers his prayer. Friends, is that your prayer? Are you regularly asking God to give you wisdom? I hope so. You need it, and so do I. Wisdom from above is a gift that must be received, but there's more to it than that. James goes on to teach us that wisdom from above rejects self-centeredness. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Here we find James teaching about the opposite of wisdom from above. In fact, in verse 15, he calls it earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Clearly, that's not what God's people are to be about. The term bitter jealousy can also be translated as envy it's wanting what we don't have and what someone else does have. But it also connotes the idea of a fierce desire to promote one's own opinion to the exclusion of others. This term, alongside selfish ambition, denotes a self-serving and self-promoting individual. And in ancient Greek literature, these two terms were often used together to talk about politicians. And that seems appropriate, does it not? I mean, just to look at American politics today. On both sides of the aisle, we find men and women full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. We see it in the business sector. We find it in the entertainment industry. And unfortunately, we can even find it in the church. And that's really what James is addressing here. We can picture leaders in the church striving to do things their way without a care in the world for how the rest of the people feel or think. You can picture regular church members who are jealous of the authority that those in leadership have. In Acts chapter 5, we find the gospel being preached with power, and many are coming to faith. Moreover, the apostles are healing multitudes of men and women. And then in verses 17 and 18 of Acts 5, we find these words, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Did you catch that? Filled with what? Jealousy. Jealousy got the best of these religious leaders. And it can get the best of you and me if we're not careful. Perhaps you are jealous of those who are in power. Maybe some women are jealous of the power of the pursuit of power that the elders would have in the life of the church. Perhaps you're jealous of the musical abilities that someone else has or their teaching abilities. Maybe selfish ambition plagues your heart and you want things done your way no matter what. Maybe that plays out in the committee that you're on or in your Bible study. Maybe bitter jealousy and selfish ambition plague you at work. Parents, you find it when you look at other families and other kids and just think, why can't my kids act like their kids? Students, maybe you're envious of someone at school or a teammate or someone in your neighborhood or at the pool who is smarter than you or more athletic than you or better looking than you. Pastor Dan Doriani has this to say about envy. Envy is the enemy of Christian living. It's the opposite of grace for it wants to grasp rather than to give. Envy is the opposite of caring for the needy. Envy seeds only its needs and desires. Envy thinks other people should care for themselves. Left to ourselves, we all live for ourselves and envy what others have, End quote. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy are a cancer. They will destroy you and those around you. And that's what James says in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Friends, this cannot be who we are as followers of Christ. But how do we fight against it? We can't just say, stop it, okay, I'm going to try harder, because that won't work. Now, the solution is actually simple yet profound. It's believing the gospel at a deeper level. Remember, the gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the good news that we who were once enemies of God have now been adopted into his family as sons and daughters. Proverbs 23, 17 says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. In other words, the the antidote to envy, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition is reverential awe of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's embracing the fact that God made you and redeemed you. You see, at the heart of it, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are a direct assault on God. They're saying, God, how you've made me and how you've gifted me and where you've placed me, those aren't best. I know better than you. How arrogant of us to say. So we need to fall on our knees and worship the living God. Thank him for the gifts he's given you. Delight in how he's made you. Treasure where he's placed you. That will help you reject self-centeredness. Wisdom from above must be received, it rejects self-centeredness, and finally it embraces robust purity. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Well, that's as easy as one, two, three, right? (laughs) Not so fast. That's a lot there. James is telling us that wisdom isn't just knowing the right thing, but knowing where to apply it in our life. Automaker Henry Ford asked electrical genius Charlie Steinmetz to build the generators for his factory. And one day, the generators came to a halt, and the repairmen couldn't find the problem. So Ford called Steinmetz, who tinkered with the machines for a few hours, and then he just threw the switch. The generators whirled to life, but Ford got a bill for $10,000 from Steinmetz. Flabbergasted, the tight fisted carmaker inquired why the bill was so high. Steinmetz replied, For tinkering with the generators, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Ford paid the bill. You know, like Steinmetz, we need to know where to apply the knowledge in order to have wisdom. Notice that James puts purity first. By doing so, he's highlighting it, he's elevating it. Pure means holy. We are made pure by the finished work of Christ. And we remain pure by abiding in Christ, as Jesus says in John 15. Now, this doesn't mean we reach perfection this side of eternity. But in Christ, we are declared holy. Why does all this matter? Because you could have all the following characteristics that James mentions: You could be peaceful, gentle, full of mercy. But if you're not connected to Christ by faith, It doesn't do you any good. You see, a lot of times you hear an emphasis on the actions of Christianity rather than the belief. A while ago I came across this quote. Christianity is more of a state of being rather than a status. Christians shouldn't ask themselves whether they are a Christian or not, but whether they are actually being Christ-like or not. And the problem with that quote is that it presents a false dichotomy. It's not either or, it's both and. And actually, if you pick just one of these, it's not biblical Christianity at all. We must be pure by trusting in the finished work of Jesus and abiding in him. And once we do that, we can live out the qualities that James is talking about. So what does this pure wisdom from above look like? Well, James lists seven items, and the first three are attitudes. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Someone who is peaceable avoids unnecessary conflict. They don't seek out arguments on Facebook or Twitter. They don't always have to prove themselves right with their spouse and won't let it go until they win the argument. second attitude is gentle. This connects back up to verse 13 where it says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness or gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness, meekness, and humility are all elements of the Greek word used here. You know, the Greeks of James' day did not prize humility. They saw it as a sign of weakness. I think that's kind of true today. We don't see many people embodying humility, unfortunately. From where does humility come? Well, from God, of course, but it's a little more nuanced than that. Scholar Douglas Moo says, Humility comes from understanding our position as sinful creatures in relationship to the glorious and majestic God. It recognizes how unable we are in and of ourselves to achieve spiritual fulfillment or to chart our own course in the world. Do you recognize your need for wisdom, for humility? Does that lead to humility and meekness? The final attitude is open to reason. This literally means that you're easily persuaded, not about important doctrinal matters, moral issues, but on personal preferences? Are these attitudes descriptive of you? Does your spouse, children, or co-workers think of you as someone who's peaceable, gentle, open to reason? If not, pray that the Holy Spirit would cultivate this in your life. second category James offers are actions, and two actions are full of mercy and good fruits. Showing mercy is something critical for us as Christians. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We show mercy to people who don't deserve it, who can't repay us for it. That's the whole point of mercy. Unfortunately, many folks outside the church are better at showing mercy than those of us inside the church. And that's an element of rebuke to us as Christians. You know, we can be so caught up on right doctrine that we fail to live as God calls us to. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Right doctrine, what we call orthodoxy, is crucial. We cannot compromise the truths of God's Word. But orthodoxy, right belief, must also lead to orthopraxy, to right living. There's so many ways to be full of mercy here in our church and in the community. You could volunteer in the nursery. You could be involved with Just Joy or a ministry to individuals with exceptionalities. You could serve at the Manor House Food Pantry or the Dorothy Day Soup Kitchen. If you aren't sure how to be full of mercy, reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about how you can use your gifts to be full of mercy. James also says we're to be full of good fruit. He doesn't specify what this fruit is, but it seems to be similar to the godly life he's mentioned in verse 13. It's just an all-round approach to service of God. And the final category of wisdom is judgments. James says we're to be impartial and sincere. In other words, we're to be genuine. We're not to say one thing and then do another. We're not to judge people based on their ethnicity or their political party or their religion. James closes his teaching on wisdom from above in verse 18 by saying, In a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is to say, righteousness or Christ-likeness does not grow in the soil of bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. No, it grows in the soil of peace. Paul challenges us in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We can't control others, but we can strive for peace in how we conduct our lives. Friends, purity in action, attitude, action, and judgment is the wisdom from God. This is how we are to live as followers of Christ. The only question is, do we value this wisdom? On May 12, 2015, a ruby called the Estrella de Fura was auctioned off in New York City. The ruby was mined in Mozambique, which is kind of unique because most expensive and rare rubies are mined in Myanmar. The ruby was 55.22 carats, which is just a massive stone. What was the price? $34.8 million. Friends, rubies are valuable. but Proverbs 8.11 says, Wisdom is more precious than rubies. When you see the description of wisdom from above, does anyone come to mind who fits these descriptions? Who is humble, gentle, meek, peaceable, full of mercy and good works. A lot of times you're like, it's not me. Who fits all this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who perfectly embodies wisdom from above. And in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If you're united to Christ by faith, then his wisdom is your wisdom. Thank the Lord for that. And if you're united to Christ by faith, then the Spirit of Christ will help cultivate more wisdom in your life as you seek to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need wisdom from above. We can't get it on our own. We must receive it from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So ask Him for it. Pray for wisdom for yourself. Pray for wisdom for me as your pastor. Pray for wisdom for the elders. Pray for wisdom for your pulpit nominating committee. May God bless us all with extraordinary wisdom. And may we use it for his glory as we live lives of pure, peaceful wisdom. Let us pray.